Welcome to the Toka Backstage Podcast. Join Toka's Executive Director, Chris Wolf, in conversations with the artists and people behind the scenes of the Torrance Cultural Arts Foundation's performances and events. Welcome back to another edition of Toka Backstage. This is Chris Wolf, the Executive Director of the Torrance Cultural Arts Foundation. I am very honored to have the director of the upcoming uh, production, One Small Step, Mr. Toby Hulse who actually, I believe we're talking all the way, you're all the way in London? Uh, Bristol. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I certainly do appreciate it. For those who, do, who may not have a season brochure in front of them uh, and may not be really familiar with the show, can you sort of capsulize what the show is? Of course, yeah. It's, um, it's the history of the space race. Um, we start with the launch of Sputnik 1, and we end with Neil Armstrong landing on the moon. And it deals with both the Soviet and the American space programs. And it's told entirely by two actors and what looks like an attic full of junk. So they, the two actors together create all the characters, the astronauts and cosmonauts, the politicians, the driving forces behind the space race. Uh, they recreate all the most iconic moments of that 12-year period of history. And yeah, it's, it's, been, it's an hour and a half of um, history, science, and uh, just basic nonsense, really. <laughs> and so, am I correct in this? I mean, I've I've done a little research on you, as I said earlier. You you have a, a tremendous history of not only directing, which I believe you directed this show, but yeah. you also are a writer. Um, did you also write this show? I didn't write this show. We were we were given a script by um, a writer called David Hastings, which had, he prepared for a TV documentary. It was about 60 pages long, which is far too long for a, a one-hour show. But what he'd done is, is all the research. I mean, he's, he's a, in fact, all the people who worked on the show are space geeks, if that's it's okay to use that word. But he's, um, he's a real enthusiast about, uh, about space. And he had selected from that enormous amount of documentary material, he'd selected the key moments, he'd, he'd found all the, the key speeches, interviews, the bits of scientific description that we needed. And then from that incredibly valuable document and all his research material, uh, there was so much research material that it, it kind of reached up as high as one of the actors when it was all stacked up in box files. From that material, we devised the show using his words, but also the a lot of what's spoken is, is, is equivalent to found material or verbatim material. So, yeah, so we, we I, I suppose I crafted it from the, the existing material, yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the two actors are portraying kids on stage? No, and they, they have a, a, a childlike enthusiasm, but they're not actually playing children. Um, there's a lovely quotation, which we, don't, we ended up not using in the show, about Walter, Walter Cronkite, when he reflects back on the Apollo 11 landing. He says, the last thing we expected to see was, were two adults who looked like children playing in the... And when you look at uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin bounding around, they look, they look like children playing. So the, the show has a very childlike, playful approach, but the actors themselves are playing adults. But they, the way that they... In the, in the same way, when, when children want to explain something, they'll, they're like, they'll, they'll pick up a stick and it can become a rocket and they can pick up a donut and it can become a space station or, or whatever. So it's got, it's got that feel to it right. um, and all of the spacecraft and technology that we recreate are done using household objects or bits and pieces of junk or anything, just anything that we found lying around to, to tell that story. 
yeah, so it's got that that feeling of play is infused all the way through it. Yes. And do you, was this show created specifically for the anniversary of? No, actually, actually, we created the show ten, no, eleven, eleven years ago was its first outing, and the Dave Hastings was working as the stage doorkeeper at um, Oxford Playhouse, um, which was the theatre that originated the show at the time, and he'd just done an MA in creative writing and the script was part of his MA. And he sent it to the theatre and said, you know, would you like to put this on, you know, I'm your stage doorkeeper. And they approached me knowing that I would take a, a, a playful approach to the script as it existed. It was very um, science heavy, the one that he'd written. That show then, we launched it in Oxford. We took it to the Edinburgh Fringe, uh, where it did very well. It then toured for a year in the UK and then went back to the Edinburgh Fringe. And it got picked up by the British Council. And we then did a year and a half's tour where we went to British Council territories. So we went all through the Middle East, all through the Arab Spring. We went to lots of the former Soviet Union countries. Uh, we went to the States. We went to India, Sri Lanka. I mean, it just it, it, the, the tour grew and grew and grew. And there was something about, it, it surprised us, but there was something about the story which had a universality that we didn't expect. And something about the way that we were telling it that made it very, very attractive to, um, to countries all across the world, particularly ones where we, we we didn't expect there to be an interest in what's essentially a story of an American achievement. Um, but it was it was it was really, and I think what it it's because the story is about how if human beings work together, and if they have imagination and they have drive and they have the will to succeed, they can overcome impossible odds. I think that's right at the heart of the space race, that's the story. Yeah, so we, so we it, it then went to bed up for uh, some years, and then with the anniversary of Apollo 11 coming up, we revived it last year so that we could tour it this year to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. Amazing. So do you find that this show is, is I mean, it's part of our family series, but mm. how young do you think kids Will it get lost on kids too young? No, or? not not at all. I mean, our our favourite audience is we had. I, I saw an excellent example of this in Oxford, where we had a, a grandparent, a parent, and a child. And the child would have been about five, and the grandparent lent to the parent and said, "Do you remember? Do you remember when I took you out into the garden when you were about five, and and I pointed at the moon and I said there are people walking on the moon right now." And the parent turned to the child and said, "Yes, that's true. It happened when I was when I was your age." And actually, it's a multi generational show. So, whilst there are things in there which will be personal memories for people who lived through that period of history, there's also a whole a whole new world to be discovered for people who weren't alive in the, that period of the sixties and fifties. And the, the way that we present it makes it very suitable for children as young as five. Um, and what we also found when we toured with the British Council for non-English speakers as well, it's a very visual show and everything. One of our rules in rehearsal was if you can show it, then don't say it. So there are, there are whole sequences which of, of spaceships docking or satellites being launched, which are all told with these household objects with very little words at all. It's all just, it's done visually and with sound effects and, and can I just say that that uh, what you were saying during rehearsal is something that so many more shows need to say. It's like if you can show it, 
don't say it because yes. like <laughs> it drives me nuts. <laughs> so tell me about yeah. yourself. How did you? What is? What was your career trajectory to become a well-known director playwright? Did you start off wanting to do that? I I suppose I'd always been doing it, but not realised that I had, and I think that's quite often the case <laughs> with people. So I. Now, as a child, I spent a lot of time with toys, making up stories with my toys. And I also tried writing plays quite young, quite at an, quite an early age. My, <laughs> my first play was, um, I wrote for my Cub Scout troupe. I must have been about eight or nine, I think. And it was, it was the story of Walter Raleigh and Sir Francis Drake, but I got the two of them mixed up. So it was the story of this, this sea captain who um, went, to, went across to America Invented, discovered potatoes and tobacco, came back, defeated the Spanish Armada, and then put a cloak underneath the feet of Queen Elizabeth I. So no, no regard for history whatsoever. But I've got, I've got all, the, I've got all the, the key things. And I was lucky that my father worked in the theatre. He was an arts administrator. So we spent a lot of time as children hanging around theatres, not backstage, but in the, the offices. So all our scrap paper when we were little was the backs of posters and box office return sheets and so theatres were very familiar to me. But I'd, it took me a long time to work out how to make that interest work as a career, actually. And I did theatre at university. I put on plays at university. I would take shows up the Edinburgh Fringe. And then I also worked as a teacher. I was a, a, in Britain, it's called Early Years. So it was, I was, was teaching nursery and reception, so three, four, five-year-old children, which I thoroughly enjoyed. I really, really enjoyed and that's all about play again. And in, I live in Bristol and we've got a, a theatre school here, the Bristol Vic Theatre School. And I decided just to try retraining. And I went and did a, re, a, a director's course for a year and actually found that I was really interested in children's theatre, really interested in family theatre, and in particular in that multi-generational theatre that crosses... No, all, all ages, and it's, it's a very difficult thing to create, but that theatre that a five-year-old and a 75-year-old can watch together and enjoy for the same reasons, not, for, not because there's jokes for adults and jokes for children, but because they're enjoying the same thing. On leaving the theatre school, I met the woman who ran the education department at Bristol Old Vic, which is the main producing house in Bristol, and they were touring a show to schools, and they needed someone who could not only appear in the shows, but could run workshops with teachers alongside it. Because I'd had my teaching experience, I was able to do that. And it just grew, it grew from there, really. And I've had a number of lucky breaks where people would say, you couldn't write a show for three-year-olds, can you? And I yeah. And that's, that's the rule, isn't it? Always, always say yes, and then work out if you can afterwards. Yeah, so it's, I've, I've been working professionally now for 20 years, and most of my work is in family theatre, um, I do a lot of adaptation as well. I'm very, very interested in adaptation and how you take stories that exist in one medium and make them work on stage or have a kind of conversation with that work on stage. And I also have continued working in schools. I do a lot of work in schools with young people. I'm currently teaching teenagers yeah, a kind of basic stagecraft course. Yeah, so it's you know, it's a variety, as a mix of theatre and education and, and family work. And uh, all of those put together means you can pay the rent. 
that's, that's the, the hardest thing in the arts, isn't it? So uh, part of what the, uh, our foundation does is we not only present a season of shows, but we're trying to, we want to help uh, nurture and mentor, you know, young artists and, mm -hmm. and give them sort of a, a stepping stone or at least help them find their way. As a professional in the theater, what words of wisdom do you impart onto young kids who are wanting to pursue it? I would say one of the things that I'm teaching the teenagers at the moment that I'm working with is to have the confidence to fail and have the confidence to try something, not knowing whether it'll succeed or not, the confidence to laugh at one's own failures, but also the confidence to step back from things that haven't quite worked and instead of just rejecting them, start to ask the questions as to why those things might not have worked. But then alongside that, being just as critical of things that are successful, I find one of the most difficult things, when something goes really well, it's really tempting to walk away from it and go, well, that went really well, and leave it at that. But it's, a, it's actually at those moments when you should be sitting and analysing why something has gone well. It's very much easier when something goes wrong to walk away and start to analyse it. And then you start to come up with rules that are based on negatives rather than rules that are based on positives. I had a really interesting experience when I was at university, which actually taught me an enormous amount about how to make it, how to make theatre work. We did, I did an adaptation of Gogol's short story, The Nose, which is a favourite, I studied Russian at school and it was one of my, it's one of my favourite short stories. And at the time I was very, very into Stephen, the work of Stephen Burkhoff. And I'd seen a lot of Stephen Burkhoff's work, like most 20 year olds, all I was doing was imitating what I'd seen. And I produced what I thought was a kind of hardcore physical theatre, Stephen Burkhoff style, social, you know, yeah. audiences were going to come out terrified by what they'd seen. And we did the first performance, the audiences roared with laughter um, all the way through. It was, and it was, it was a real shock to us. And we, myself and the cast stepped away from it and went, okay, so the audience really enjoyed that, but not for the reasons that we thought. But it's clearly a success, but we don't know why it's a success. So we sat that evening and we analysed what we'd done and went back and put the show on again the next day. And again, it, we got a lot of laughter out of it. Then we realised that what we'd invented was, a, was some kind of comedy. We didn't know that we'd invented that. And about two weeks into the great thing about Edinburgh is you get these four-week runs. So about two weeks into the run, someone came to see it and they came up to us afterwards and they said, uh, you've all trained with Billy Gaulier, haven't you? You're all clowns. And that was the first I'd heard of clowning, the first I'd heard of Philippe Gaulier and the idea of theatre clown. And, and it, we'd invented it by mistake. And what was, that was a re, that was, it was a really salutary moment of, look at the things that are going wrong, but look at the successes and analyse them and learn from them and, and keep going, keep like, being prepared to make the same thing over and over again, just to see what will work. And I, I think that's, that's what we, we, I learned from that. In Britain, we have a company called Nehi who tour internationally, and one of their rehearsal principles is strong but wrong. So make an offer, make sure it's strong. Doesn't matter if it's wrong, as long as, long as you've committed to that that offer, you've committed to that decision, you can't really be criticised for it. <laughs> and I think that's and that's that's a very hard thing for young people to do because you know there's there's a fear of being judged and education systems want us to be right and we'd have to learn to kind of unpick that a bit be prepared to be wrong and 
be prepared to make a fool of ourselves a bit. And out of that, we can discover the things that will take us forward as artists. So you created the show that you accidentally created a clowning show. Yes. But <laughs> is that what sort of led you to now? Because I noticed in, in your, 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 this thing that I read about you, that mm. clowning was one of the things that you, that you were uh, active in. Do you, did, was that sort of why you got interested in clowning or did it? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was someone pointing that, that out to me. And then the more clowning that I watched and the more work that I did in those areas and the more books that I read and the more people that I spoke to, I realized that actually the sort of theater that I liked and the sort of the ways of telling stories that I liked and that playfulness and that ability to laugh at oneself but also the, the, the vulnerability of putting yourself on stage. Those were all things that appealed to me. And they were all things that I already felt. I now teach at Bristol Vic Theatre School, and I teach improvisation and clowning and performing for younger audiences. And one of the things that I was say to the theatre school is, at this was you, you probably know the answers already about what you think theatre is or what you think acting is. What you should be looking for is the people who think the same as you and that kind of confirmation of so for some people they'll read Stanislavski and go yeah that makes sense to me you know I understand that and some people will come across the work of Meisner and say well that makes sense to me it so happened that I came across the work of uh, the great plans and that made sense that made sense to me so you know if we're going to put on a show about space race then it makes sense to me that obviously the rocket will be a load of cardboard boxes piled on top of each other because that's got the same playful, childlike, clown impulse to it. We're not going to, you know, <laughs> like tech or projections or, you know, it's not going to be Miss Saigon that we're producing. Right. Uh, we, we have a helicopter in our show and it's um, someone with a piece of um, rubber tubing that they whiz around their head like that and they make a helicopter noise. And it's every bit as effective as Miss Saigon, but a whole lot cheaper. Well, that was actually sort of my, my next question because in reviewing the 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 video of of one small step hmm. it did seem like there were elements of clowning in it so yeah. did you find that helpful in in putting this together yeah and the robin one of the two actors that's in it i've worked i first met him on the first version of one small step so i've known him been working with him now for 10 11 years and it just so happens that we gel in the same area and we've we've gone on and done lots of clown shows together what he's very, very good at, and Shay, that Shay, who's in the show as well, is putting himself on stage. And you see him, you see Robin walk on, and there he, there he is. And then he, from that, he can then take on, you know, he can play Neil Armstrong, or he can play Yuri Gagarin, or I think he does, he does all sorts of famous people that you'll, you'll uh, he does a great Walter Cronkite. But Underneath that, at the same time, there's also Robin kind of peeping out and saying, look at me, I've put some glasses on, I'm Walter Cronkite, or I've put a bucket on my head, I'm Neil Armstrong, or you know, whatever, the, whatever the, the thing may be, which allows this lightness of touch and this kind of playful commentary on the story. And it also, it's, I find it's very, very inclusive of an audience. It's, it's kind of unpretentious. It doesn't separate the actor from the audience in any way it's it's a it's a communal act of storytelling that engage that's going on in that sort of show which is very much how i think it should work 
Well, there's actually a question that I, I have that I've, I've been struggling with the answer to this because I have had the for- good fortune of attending some like major children's festivals, mm-hmm. a couple of them in Canada, and there were international festivals. And I, uh, and I don't know how to say this without insulting my audience, but I've always found that the British or Australian shows were so intriguing to watch mm-hmm. Because they did sort of use their, the, I remember one show, to this day, it was like, uh, gosh, it's got to be like almost 18 years ago, I went yeah. to Canada to see International Festival for Families, and it was a show by a British group, it was called Tirnuno, it was the... Oh, that's fantastic, isn't it? Did you see it? Yeah, they're, they're a Bristol company, Traveling Light, yeah. Yes, yeah. Traveling Light. Yeah. To yeah. this day, I think about that show and thinking, mm. God, I wish that was touring i've reached out to them i don't know how many times and said please come to america because yes. it's an amazing show but I so I, I guess my question is is the the creative process different in uk versus the us or uh, i spoke to somebody from australia they thought it was because there was more support for the artists to sort of just create their work Whereas here, it's more of a struggle for artists, so they have to be more commercial. It's disappearing now, sadly, because of funding. But there, there was a there was always a very strong strand in British work for young people, which came out of educational work. So there was through the seventies and eighties, there was the, there was a big theatre and education program, um, and a lot of money was available for companies to take work into schools because of the strange union rules that existed at the time. To get an equity card, you had to have done a certain number of of equity contracts. And for a lot of actors, that meant doing theatre and education work. And so you've got, you've got extraordinary, and there's, um, you know, the actor Jeremy Irons. So there's there's somewhere there is, no, there's footage of Jeremy Jeremy Irons doing children's theatre. And he was in in a, a children's TV show as well, for the same reason. And I think that established a, a non-commercial strand of in Britain, and a lot of theatres had um, specific theatre and education departments that would tour shows out um, into schools, and that m- the money for that came from government or arts council funding, and it ex- it pops up every once a, once in a while in this country again. Um, some theatres still produce work that goes out into schools. I was lucky enough to be involved with a programme at Bristol Old Vic, where it was European money, actually, that was for a very specific area of the West Country that had been classified as um, an area of cultural deprivation. And we were able to write a show very specifically for the 24 schools that were involved, um, which then taught to those schools, which then had a support programme where each of those schools had seven weeks' worth of workshops, so they generated their own material. We then did a second year where we taught a second show in response to their show, and then a third year again where I went and worked as a writer with those schools and they wrote shows which then were performed by professional actors. So there was this this feedback and um, conversation going between the professional artists and the schools and the funding bodies and the theatre. And that's, I think that generates a sort of seriousness amongst British theatre makers who want to make work for young audiences. And it's still... It's still slightly looked down on 
but there is there's a there's a growing sector in in certainly in Britain and probably elsewhere of people who've chosen to work for young people, and it's not that they're doing it because they, you know, they can't get a job anywhere else, or they're not they're not good enough to be in the West End, or you know whatever 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 the you know, the criticism might be. It's people who actually want to make work for young people, and interestingly, the best of our current adult work, I think, is coming from people who learn their craft and still make theatre for young audiences. So Sally Cookson, who recently did Monster Calls, which has gone into West End, and she did Jane Eyre, which was at the National Theatre. She made Those shows are made in exactly the same way that she makes shows for young audiences. They've got the same playfulness, the same kind of open creativity, the same devised nature of the, the, the shows that are made in the rehearsal room rather than by a writer. And similarly, knee-high, they're, they're working in the same ways that you would work with young people. And I think that's probably the strength of the British the British work. It comes from that, I think. Uh, we're running out of time, but I just want to go back to one small step, which is uh, Saturday, November 2nd. Um, we have two performances. What is your hope that people walk away with when they come see it? it is there a message that you want to impart? Yeah, well, I, a, a number of things. I would like, um, I'm, I'm very interested in science and history, and I would love for people who don't know that much about, about that period to have, have a, it's, it's an introduction to the space race and the extraordinary things that human beings achieved in that period. The bigger message is that John F. Kennedy says, no, we choose to go to the moon, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. And I think that's choice. Now, you know, NASA and the American people made a decision to do something with, that was difficult rather than something that was easy. And in that extraordinary speech, he says, no, we, we don't even know how we're going to do it, but we are going to do it by the end of the decade. And, and he admits that there are things that haven't even been invented yet, that they're going to have to invent. And that's, I think, what one of the things that human beings do so well is have a vision and the imagination and the intellectual and faculties, and all, but also the teamwork and the collaboration to bring about impossible, seemingly impossible things. And at a time when there are many things about this world that seem to be threatening us, and you know, that idea that we, with teamwork we can we can do this, and with the imagination and the will do something that seems impossible. That's the kind of bigger message. But then also, I would love people to come away and want to put a cardboard box on their head and be an astronaut. I would love someone to, you know, to pick up a cucumber and say, hey, this looks like a rocket. Or you know, to, just to, to see the world in that kind of childlike way again, I think is, that in itself is a joy. Brilliant. Uh, Fingers crossed that that happens because we could use more yeah, of that. Thank you. Well, Toby, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. And again, that's one small step on Saturday, November 2nd at 2 and 5. I'm guessing you're not going to be here? Uh, sadly, no. <laughs> uh, well, we will think good thoughts for you. Thank you so much for your time. I do appreciate you. it.